Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. So tonight our title is Through the Eyes of the Gospel. Luke 7, through the eyes of the gospel. But before we dive in, as per usual, I would like to ask us a couple of questions just before we start. And the question is, how do you know that you are saved? How do you know that you are saved? How do you know that you've truly placed your faith in Jesus? What would that look like? What would that produce in our lives? And the reason I'm asking is, is Paul makes the statement in 2 Corinthians 13 and he says, test yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself, don't just assume. Because one of the sad things for me is as we read through scripture, is that the people that had the most confidence that they were following God and that they were right with God, were the ones that in fact were not. To a point that they were actually self-righteous in their prideful belief that they are surely the holy ones. They are surely the righteous ones. They are surely following God and God is surely pleased with them. And when when Jesus looks at a world living in sin and he sees the crowds, he sees the multitudes, just like that passage that Jan Lowe read from right now, Matthew 11, the response is not hatred, the response is not anger, the response is Jesus having compassion with them because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But for the Pharisees, for the self-righteous, for those who thought that they walked with God is right, who did all of the seemingly right things externally, but inwardly did them for the wrong motives. For them, Jesus reserved wrath. It was for them that Jesus folded the whip. And it's very important then that we heed the words of Paul and actually do introspection and ask ourselves, but are we then saved? Are we in the faith? And just to give us a moment, quickly think about that. What would that look like? A saved person. What would the fruit be? And bear in mind, I'm not asking what gets us saved. I'm asking what does salvation produce? How would you know? And then according to your own assessment or your own judgment about what salvation would produce, are you then saved? Do you meet your own standard? Did you pass the test to see whether you're in in the faith? Paul says to see whether Christ has truly been formed in you, lest you fail the test. But are we truly saved? I'm going to pray for us and then we jump in. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we can acknowledge tonight, Lord, that whether it is pertaining to salvation or questions that we have or leading, Lord, that we want to experience in our life from you, Lord, that you are not a passive God, Lord, 
You're not disinterested. You're not sitting far off and kind of seeing what we do on our own. No, you are intimately involved, Lord. Willing and able. And we thank you for that, Lord. And thank you, Lord, for each and every one of us, Lord, wondering, but, but does God truly really love? Is God truly really willing? The evidence stands, Lord, fixed, and that is Jesus Christ, crucified on the cross, raised to life again. And not because you need anything, Lord, but because you love us. You don't need anything from us, Lord. You are the great I Am, the all-sufficient God. But out of love for us, Lord, out of grace, that display of love, Lord, will stand for eternity. And thank you, Lord, that it is certain. Thank you for your goodness, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you know every single heart that's here tonight. The questions that we have, Lord, the things that we struggle with. And we pray, Lord, that by grace, we might receive your word, Father, and be shaped by it. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. So the verses that we're going to read in Luke 7 is from verse 36 to 50. It's a well-known story of a Pharisee inviting Jesus to his house. And as Jesus is reclining in Simon the Pharisee's house, in enters this sinful woman. And she starts to minister to Jesus. All of a sudden there's a response from Simon. There's a response from the woman. Simon kind of questions the perception of Jesus. You know, does he really know? Does he really see? Is he truly a prophet? And Jesus obviously addresses Simon saying to him that he is the one with the perception issue. He's the one that's not seeing through the eyes of the gospel. And one of the things that we know through the story is that our view of the gospel will influence our view of ourselves, our views of others, and also those of God. How we view those things will be determined about our perception of the gospel. Also we see in the story how we will respond to Jesus if we truly understand the gospel. We also see an outflow of faith, how faith will look like, what fruit it will produce in our life, if we truly understand the gospel. A beautiful story, but just to kind of sketch the picture here for us, as this woman enters, a sinful woman, and most interpreters will agree on the fact that this was most likely a prostitute, a known sinful woman. You know, we all sin, but we are not known sinners, you know, for something specific. And this last couple of weeks, our baby was in the ICU in Trichard. And as we were driving home every night from Trichard in that road where the garage is at, on the third corner from the garage, there'd be a couple of ladies each night, standing there dressed in a certain way, wanting a certain thing, and it's quite obvious. And the same is true of this particular woman. A well-known sinner, she stands there and people, I don't know in those days, they also did the corner thing, it was just the street, I'm not sure. But she's standing there and the people come past and they know who she is and she, they know what she does. And in enters this woman in this holy assembly of righteous and holy people. And Jesus is also there. And just to kind of get the picture in our minds, when they recline at the table, in the old days, 
they would lean into the table, kind of with their arms rested on the table as they were eating and with their feet out towards the outside. So as we read through the story and the lady comes to Jesus' feet, it's not she ducking underneath the table, you know, crawling there, getting to Jesus' feet. No, she's standing on the outside as Jesus' feet points towards the outside. So let's read through this story and see what we can learn from it, seeing through the eyes of the gospel. Luke 7, verse 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, that is Jesus. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. And a certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered then, I suppose. They can kind of hear that bit of resentment in Simon's voice, you know, as if you're asking me this stupid question. Now, I'm a wise, intelligent man, you know, just ask me something deeper. And he answers, the one I suppose with whom he canceled the largest debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Just a beautiful story for me. In light of one of the greatest misconceptions that we have about salvation and about religion in general. Not only in our modern times, not only in traditional Christian culture in South Africa, not only in the West, but in the world in general. This works-based, self-righteous culture that we have, and the gospel, on the other hand, that is so countercultural, that is so different from anything that is there. Important for us to understand this story correctly and see what's going on here. And the first thing that I want us to note that as we read through the story is that just because we call Jesus teacher and invite him to our house does not mean we are necessarily saved. Just because we invite Jesus to our house and call him teacher doesn't mean that we are saved. Simon invited Jesus over, he ate with him, he called him teacher. But that doesn't illustrate faith necessarily. And the reason for that is, is that God is concerned not only about what we do but also why we do what we do. The motive behind why we do that and the question we need to ask is why did Simon invite Jesus what was the purpose what was the motive for which reason and you see the same thing is 
true about us as well. Many times we are confused and deceived about the reasons why we do what we do. Why are we following God? Why are we inviting Jesus into certain areas of our life? What's the reason? What's the motive? A very important question that we need to ask often and go and sit at the feet of Jesus and actually be still and allow Him to come and explain to us the same as He did with Simon here. Scripture says the heart is deceitful above all things. We're often confused about the motives of why we do what we do. We would like to believe that it's for the right reasons. We would like to believe it's the right things we're busy with. But often it's not. It's kind of like a husband trying to explain to his wife why he wants to buy a certain thing. And initially we're just like, yes, it's a cool thing. What's going to make me look cool? Whatever the case might be, that's why I want it. But the further the argument goes, you actually start to believe yourself. And at the end of the argument, you're actually believing, man, you would be a bad husband or a bad father if you don't get this for your family. I mean, it's just so beneficial. This thing, we need to get it. And we are often deceived about why we do what we do. Same when it comes to Jesus. That just because we invite him, just because we call him teacher, doesn't mean we are saved. Jesus says, many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord. Let me not do this and that. And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. You works of lawlessness. Just because we call him Lord, just because we call him teacher, doesn't mean we're saved. Just because we invite him, doesn't mean we're saved. What's the motive? What's the reason behind that? Secondly, we see that if we understand the gospel correctly, it will influence our views of ourselves, those around us, and others. Simon had a view of himself, the lady, and Jesus. The lady coming in has a view of those around her, herself, and Jesus. One understands something and the other one does not. And thirdly, we see an outflow of true faith. But first, let's focus on the Pharisee trying to ask him this question, but why does he invite Jesus over? What's the purpose here? And why isn't he seeing properly? And what isn't he seeing properly? In verse 39 and 40, we see, it says, Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, how the lady came and ministered to Jesus, now Jesus is allowing this to take place. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And here you can see the skew view Simon has of himself, the lady, and of Jesus. Why am I saying of himself as well? Because you can kind of think about what happened before the lady entered and what Simon's thought process was as he's inviting Jesus to his house. The moment Jesus says yes and he actually comes to his house, he thinks, man, this Jesus truly is a wise man. I mean, if I had to eat at my house, I would. When I'm quite the guy. I would have also said yes when I invited me to come over. Man, this must be a holy person because he recognizes other holy people. It would make sense for Jesus to come to me, to recline with me. This makes a lot of sense. For I am holy. But now enters this woman. And like I, can, like I said, you know, many of them might have passed her, known her, know the name, know what she's busy with. And here all of a sudden she enters. And you can kind of see the reaction on the people's faces. I mean, you can just imagine the scene playing off. And in she comes and they're wondering, man, who does she know here? You know, who has her number? With who is she Facebook friends? 
who is she coming to see? And they might have had their you know, doubts of one another and they're thinking, yeah, Gert, he's always a dodgy one, maybe, huh? But here she comes walking to Jesus. And they're like, ah, oh, she knows him. She came here for him. And he's allowing this ministry to take place. And all of a sudden the doubt sets in because this is an unrighteous woman. This is an unholy woman. She's not supposed to be here and he's allowing this to happen. And all of a sudden they doubt God as well. Now, I would have loved to see how this plays out in the modern church if Jesus was also physically present. Because unfortunately one of the things the church is known for is judgmental. Self-righteousness. Pride looking down on others. And as someone interesting, because you can imagine, she just heard that Jesus is there and she just rushed. She had no time to stop by the mall and just get an appropriate church outfit. She just came as she were. And as she entered, they could see, this is a different type of woman. And many times we get that. Someone coming into church doesn't look and smell and sound like the average person does. And we're wondering, you know, what are they doing now? But we're not seeing physically Jesus present, allowing them to minister as well. Accepting them as they are. Not leaving them as they are, but accepting them as they are. Amen. And he has a skewed perception. And we need to ask the question, why? What is hindering Simon's sight? Why does he have a wrong view of himself, of the lady of God? What is it that he doesn't understand? And luckily for us, Jesus, being Jesus, answers the question. You know, this passage of Scripture is one of the beautiful things about God, but also one of the scary things about God. It's many times why quiet time isn't that comfortable. Why reading the Bible isn't so relaxing many times. Why praying sometimes is confrontational. Why we don't want to go and sit still before God many times. Because Jesus also answers questions that we seemingly didn't ask aloud. We were wondering about these things. And here comes Jesus and he says, Hey, I have something to say to you. You know, as new believers also come into the church, one of the greatest responsibilities I feel we have as Christians is to explain to them that quiet time isn't all of this butterflies and goosebumps. You are drawing near to a holy God and we are not holy. It's going to be uncomfortable a lot of the times. Yes, and there's going to be grace, and there's going to be joy, and there's going to be peace, and there's going to be all of that, but there's going to be a lot of confrontation. There's going to be a lot of conviction as Jesus answers these questions that we didn't even ask aloud, but that we're wondering about, or these misconceptions that we have about reality. And he does that here. And he says to Simon, a certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50, when they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And here we see the problem that Simon has, the reason why he doesn't see reality as he should. It's because he has a misconception about the problem we have as human beings. Like we say, whenever we view the gospel, we need to view it in four areas. Problem, solution, response and effect. If we start wrong, we will end wrong. And Simon has a wrong view of the problem we have as humans. The problem that he has as a human being. And therefore, he doesn't see the world 
others and God as he should. And I remember a couple of months after God saved me, we were invited to go to a school in Bala Bala to go and minister there because the people had a drug problem in the schools. And I was a drug addict. And so the people know that because, you know, that's, it's like the sinful woman. They know that guy needs salvation. One of those types of stories, you know, publicly known. This guy's a bit off the track. And when I got saved, they invited me to go there and to minister to the school. And as I was explaining my testimony to one of the classes, I referred to this passage of Scripture. Explained to them, I know I, I have the, how can I say, I almost want to call it the blessing of knowing that my life was really out of line because of the visible, active things that I did wrong. Where a lot of people don't see that because they're doing seemingly all of the right things but for the wrong reasons and it's a little bit more difficult to see. And as I was explaining this, I say to them, this, I think about this passage of scripture. That is why I want to serve God and devote my life to Him because I know the problem I had. I know the debt forgiven. I know the cost of salvation. And one of the learners raised their hand and I said, yes, what is it? And they said, is God going to love me more? Am I going to love God less just because I'm not as sinful as you were? It's like that. There's the misconception. There's the problem. And many times we read through this passage and we actually think that that's what Jesus is busy saying. That Jesus is busy explaining to Simon, hey, I just want you to understand, just bear with this woman. I know you don't have that much and I know you don't need that much forgiveness so I understand that you are not serving me and as, as devoted as the woman and I know you didn't kiss me and I know you didn't anoint me and I know you gave me no water but it's understandable. You don't need that help. You're kind of righteous by yourself and I just want to say, hey, just excuse the woman. She's really desperate. She's really in need of help. She acts a little bit strange. Just forgive her. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that Simon has no idea the debt that he has towards God. He has no idea of the problem. He has no idea how desperately he needs God. He has no idea that there is no way that he can pay the debt. He has no idea. God is not saying that some of us have little sin and others have greater sin. He's not saying some of us owe a small amount and others a large amount. He's saying, no, we cannot pay. Whether we think it's 50 or 500, we cannot pay. We don't have the money. Something else needs to happen. And when we understand that, our perception changes. When we truly believe that, and the question that I'm going to ask us is, do we know, do we realize how desperately we need God? Do we understand that we have nothing to add, nothing to bring, nothing to buy? As Jonathan Edwards states so beautifully, we add nothing to salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. Do we grasp that? And one of the things that's so vivid in Simon's life is the core of sin. What it all comes down to, and that is what? Living for who? Ourself. That's the center, that's the core. Doesn't matter how it looks like, doesn't matter what you're doing, if you're doing it for yourself, that's sin. That is unrighteousness. We are supposed to live for God Almighty, holy, righteous, just, creator of all, through whom, by whom, and for whom all things exist. Living for ourselves. And we can see this in Simon's life. Look at how Jesus describes the response of Simon towards him in contrast to the lady. He says, do you see this woman? 
Do you see? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. In other words, Simon, you did not invite me here to give me something. You did not invite me here so that you can do something for me. You did not invite me here to show your gratitude, to show your affection, to show your devotion. No, that's not why I'm here. You are here because you want something from me. You are not the one that's going to serve. You are not the one that's going to be devoted. You want something. Why? That's the problem with the works-based salvation. That is the problem with self-righteousness. The idea that I have now done my part and God now better do His. I've invited Him and He must come and bless and He must come and serve. Because look at how great I am. And if Simon rocks up to heaven and they ask him, on what basis are you allowed to enter? He says, well, because I'm Simon. I deserve to enter. You see, every other religion in the world says, Act the right way and then God will bless you. Then God will be pleased with you. Christianity is the only religion that says that God has already paid the price and therefore we can live as we ought. Therefore we can receive the grace that enables. It's not so that we can earn something, but it's because of a thankfulness because we already have. Everything we do doesn't add to salvation. It's thankfulness because of salvation. Do we understand that? Do we truly grasp that that is what's happening here and you can kind of see the response to Simon as well and we need to ask ourselves the question is this maybe us where would we see where would we see that we also have the motive of inviting Jesus not so that we can serve him but so that he can serve us one of the areas is our prayer life if we have a prayer life what are we praying for if we have kids, we pray with them. What are we teaching them to pray for? How do we pray with them? At night, Lord, thank you for a lovely day. This one's a bit sick, so if you can heal him, that would be lovely. This one has that thing at school, so if he can get the team or get the good marks, we pray for that, Lord. And please pray that you bless us tonight and you keep us safe and that we have a lovely night's rest. Amen. That's a nice God. And everybody would want to serve him. But then the disciples asked Jesus, how should we pray? He said, pray then like this. Your name be holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That's first. That takes priority first. Is our prayer life filled with that? Lifting up and magnifying the name of God. Asking God so that His kingdom can come in us and through us. Lord, we pray for salvation. In the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, he said, First of all, then let prayer and supplication be made for all people, especially kings and queens and those in high positions, that we might live peaceful and godly lives, dignified in every way. For this is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desire all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Are we praying like that? Lord, your kingdom come. Lord, you will be done. When was the last time that you truly had something that you truly desired, but you said, Lord, nonetheless, your will be done, not mine. If you don't give it, that's fine. I know you are, Lord. We're constantly just praying for our things because then we are inviting Jesus not to serve Him, but for Him to serve us. 
And many times we get angry when God doesn't allow the things we need to come our way. Because we did our part. We've done our part. Why isn't he doing his? Self-righteousness. That's a works-based salvation. No gratitude. But demands. Confession of sin. Give us this daily bread, but forgive us also our sin. Forgive others that sin against us. Are we praying like that? When was the last time you actually sat before God and confessed your sin? And naming it, the thing that you're actually doing, the thing that you're actually desiring, naming it on its name. Not just, Lord, forgive us our sins, amen. What is it? And are we teaching our kids to do the same? Last night I was praying with my kids, you know, we have a little bit of pride, so I I want to confess my sin before them, but I don't want to be too specific, you know. I don't want them to look at me strange. But yesterday was a specific day, and as I was praying, I also just said, Lord, forgive me of my sin. And my younger son said, no, say, because you bit my finger. <laughs> say. Because I got a little bit irritated and he was all in my face and I bit his finger. And I said, no, I don't like that. Which is obviously wrong. If you were wondering, don't bite your kids. Yeah. Now, sometimes we say we don't teach them to bite others, but it looks like I do. <laughs> he says, no, say, say it, name it. Because I tell them, name it. Say what you did. Name it to God. That's how we should pray. But His kingdom come. Where's another area that we would see? Self-righteousness. Manifest as a deep insecurity actually, but it's well hidden away. So instead of thinking, man, I wish I had that freedom, I think, man, that person is weird. How do we respond when someone does something that we're not used to, maybe in worship? Someone going lying flat on their face on the ground, and we're like, what? Markala. What are they busy with? Are they not aware these people here can't do that at home, man? No freedom. So aware of the people around us. So insecure of what they might think. Man, I think there's so much people that just want to put their hands in there and just worship God freely, but they can't do that. Because what about the people? What will they think? What will they say? And the problem is we don't truly understand the gospel. If you truly realize the severity of sin and the grace of God in light of that, man, we wouldn't worry about what the people around us think. Sharing the gospel at work or in with our family. Standing up for that thing that isn't right at work. In public, how do we do that? How do we respond to that? Is there a fear of man? Because the gospel should free us from that. And we see that here in the life of the woman, totally different. Because she understands that the price has already been paid. It's already done. And what I'm doing is a reaction out of gratitude to what has already been done. It's not so that I can gain something. It's already been given. When she understands that everybody has that same problem and everybody has that same Savior. So if I'm entering this holy assembly of Pharisees and righteous people, I don't care what they think. Because they need Him as much as I do. They need him as much as I do. And if they don't get that, that's their problem. But I'm going to serve him regardless of what people think. And I'm definitely not here to get something from him because I've received the most precious thing in this life and that is forgiveness and friendship and reconciliation to a holy God. And that is why the most precious thing to me, this ointment that I have, I pour it out on the feet of Jesus. Everything I bring, everything I give. 
and our whole life is transformed. And I don't know if we realize this, that the very things she used to serve herself with and to enrich herself with and to live a life of sin with is the very thing she brings to Jesus to now serve him with. As the lady of the night, she used her eyes, her hair, her lips, her perfume to seduce. And what is she using here to minister to Jesus? Her eyes, her lips, her hair, her perfume. Everything, Lord, poured out on your feet. See, that is the heart of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 to 15. It says that the love of Christ compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. So that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised again. That's the gospel. That's the call of sin versus the transformation that the gospel brings. How do I know if I'm truly being saved? It's because I no longer invite Jesus to come and bless me in my righteousness, but I pour out everything on the feet of Christ. Perfect now. By no means. But intentionally, yes. I do not sit passively waiting for Jesus to come. No, but if I hear he's there, I go running like the lady did I will go and find him where he is why so that he can come and help me with my little problem no so that I can pour out all that I have on his feet because I know who he is and I know what he has done are we devoted to Christ and the answer is now not man if we realize shucks no that's not me to go and get the most expensive thing to go and pour it out on Christ and saying how a man I wish that I hope that fixes my heart no to go and be still and to sit at the feet of Christ and pray, Lord, come and show. Lord, come and reveal. I have heard, but I do not have the reality. I've heard the message, and some of us maybe a thousand times. But it's obviously when I look at my heart, my motives for why I do what I do, the reality isn't there. So God, come and save. Lord, come and reveal. Come and show. And He's willing and able. And look at what Jesus says after he views these two responses of the people. He says in verse 74, Therefore, therefore, because of what she's done, therefore, for this reason, here's the evidence. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus is not saying, because she did this, now I forgive her. He's saying, no, this is the evidence that she has been saved. That her sins has been forgiven. That she's truly placed her faith in me. This is the evidence that she understands the gospel. This is the inevitable outflow of someone grasping the reality of who we are and what God has done in spite of that. Devotion to Christ. But the one who thinks he needs little forgiveness, he will love little. There will be little to no devotion. I don't know if you, Christian life goes like this. Every now and again we're following God with everything in us. And then... Bah, everything falls flat. Do we understand the problem? Do we understand the gospel? Do we comprehend how much we need Christ? And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Isn't those beautiful words? Go in peace. And some of us tonight don't know, go in peace. We don't understand that, we don't comprehend that. There's no peace. It's like Jan Lowe said, it's tired, it's depleted, it's worn out. There's no peace, there's no freedom. Why? Because we're constantly striving. 
And even the most prideful person has the insecurity, but is it truly enough? Will it truly please God? Man, I think so now. I think I'm better than most. But there's no surety of salvation. The surety lies in Christ, not because of what I've done, but because of who He is. And not only is my sins forgiven, but when God looks at me, He sees the perfect life of Christ. Not only washed clean, but added the righteousness of Christ. There's nothing more sure than that. And that allows us to live with peace, to go in peace. Because we are forgiven and we are reconciled to a holy God. Why? Because of Jesus. Point, stop, end. Because of Christ, because of what He's done, because He drew us, because He saved us. Because of Christ. I end off for us with the following statement. Self-righteousness invites Jesus to get the expensive ointment. The gospel invites us to pour out the expensive ointment on Jesus. You see, if we think the problem that we have as human beings is a lack of good deeds and a lack of the right moral choices, we would think the solution is a little bit more good deeds and a little bit more moral good choices. And we would think the response is to invite Jesus to come and tell him, hey, look, we've done and the effect would surely be that God blesses us all we do. But when we truly understand that the problem that we have is much more severe than that, and every one of us has it, and that's that we live for ourselves, and even when we do the right things, it's for the wrong reasons. And the solution is that even in spite of that, Jesus Christ gave himself to set us free from that. The response will be a life surrendered to God, pouring out everything on him, and the effect of that will be the grace imparted to us so that we can live as we ought. Perfect now but intentionally following Jesus nonetheless.